Hey all, this is Miranda Gullett. Welcome to the first episode back of uh, season two of Brave Talk Podcast. We're so happy you're joining us. We really put a lot of love and care into this first episode back. Uh, For those of you who listened to the first season, I talked a lot about this this trip I was getting ready for when we were still in the season um, to Cambodia and Thailand. In the summer, I went with an organization called Destiny Rescue. I highly recommend going with them. I highly recommend going to Southeast Asia with them. They took such good care of us, and um, they also didn't sugarcoat anything. Uh, it was a very raw, very beautiful trip. And so this first episode back, we've got some uh, in-country interviews I did when I was there with Destiny Rescue staff. They're all volunteer staff. And so uh, we interviewed four people. And so you'll get to hear their stories in this episode. And then I, I want to share my story from the trip and what God did and what he's still doing um, we serve an amazing God. We don't just serve an amazing God. We get to know and love and be and fellowship and live with an amazing God. He's so good. He's beyond measure. He's beyond our comprehension. He's beyond the plans that we can muster up. The plans and the ideas and even the creativity that we might be really good at. He's so much better. Listeners, following our three interviews, I was able to get with Destiny Rescue volunteer staff in Chiang Rai, Thailand. The quality is uh, a little raw, it's uncut, it's just in the moment with three people who were willing to come and record with me really quick, like in the middle of projects and dinners and stuff like that. So uh, just enjoy these interviews with Becca, David, and Nikki, and uh, really be encouraged. Thank you. All right, we are here with Becca in Chiang Rai, Thailand, and can you please share with us your story? Yes, I'd be happy to. Um, My name is Rebecca Ellis. Um, I just moved here to volunteer with Destiny Rescue about three months ago. Um, I have quite a long (laughs) testimony, um, but I won't go into everything. Uh, The most important thing is that I wasn't always serving God. I grew up in church, but I was quite rebellious. Um, So I just went my own way, pretty Mm -hmm. much. Um, Within the last, well, in 2015, I gave my heart back to God. And I decided to live for Him. Um, A lot of the things that uh, kind of hurt me were in the church. So Mm -hmm. it was really difficult for me to go back to church. But I did find a new church that I loved very much. And so I started going there, and I started growing. I started doing discipleship, and then I started feeling really restless. And I'm like, okay, God, what do you want me to do? You know, I know there's something you want me to do, but I didn't know what it was. Um, And so um, through all of these things, um, I had a boyfriend that I definitely shouldn't have been with. I struggled through a lot of things with him. And then one year after I I finally let go of that relationship that wasn't going anywhere, 
God called me to come here to Thailand. Wow. So it was like he gave me a year to be like, okay, let's reevaluate you and and bring you to a place where you're ready to be called by me. Wow. Um, So I knew for about two years, and I actually prayed for two years um, because I had that restless feeling. Right. And I'm like, what am I supposed to do? So um, my brother-in-law works for Destiny Rescue in the U.S. Oh, cool. Okay. And so my sister came with him on their first team trip. Mm-hmm. to Cambodia and Thailand and she texted me I woke up at like 3.30 in the morning and it was daytime in Thailand so she texted me and I saw it because I was up for some reason Wow! and it said do you want to be business manager in Thailand Wow! <laughs> and I saw the text message and I said yes in yeah. my heart like I was like yes wow. and I was like wait what am I saying <laughs> why, right like think why am later I saying yes I know nothing about Thailand you know um, so I opened my Bible app and I, I did answer her back. I said, yes, what would it entail? Mm-hmm. And then, um, I opened up my Bible and it was Ephesians 4, 1, um, Paul saying, I therefore a prisoner of the Lord beg you to live a life worthy of the calling wow. for you've been called by God. Yeah. So I just broke down when I read that and I felt like that was such a confirmation from God. So I put my application in. I had, I was supposed to have two interviews over the phone with Jim, the HR guy, and I only had one, and he's like, you're, you're the person, like, you're right. coming over here, and which I already knew, because I was called. Wow. Um, so, I didn't know how long it would take me to raise the money, I didn't know anything about Thailand, I actually um, researched the wrong city. Oh, first. <laughs> did we search Chiang Mai? Chiang Mai, yeah. <laughs> and um, so I was just like, wow, this is so crazy. But I, there's never been a moment where I didn't have peace wow. about being here. So yeah. I know there's a reason. Um, people have told me different things. You know, you'll get here and you'll be like, what am I doing? You know, and I've had moments of that a little bit in my role because my role was so new here. Yeah. Um, but never in questioning what I'm doing here. Wow. I know I'm supposed to be here. So. It's been a really amazing journey of growth for me just in the last three months. Well, six months. So I I applied in November of last year, and I got here on May 3rd. So it was only six months. That is remarkably fast. (laughs) I know. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, and the weird thing is I was super impatient the whole time. Like, I was like... You needed to be here. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, like, man, why is this taking so long? I really want to raise the money. And so, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Thank you for sharing. You're very welcome. That is very brave. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Thank you. You're welcome. This cat is like, can you say your name? Yeah, my name's David Woodward. David Woodward. And you grew up in Oregon. I grew up in Oregon. And then you moved to Australia for your wife. I moved, well, I didn't move there for my wife. I moved there for ministry. Oh, really? Um, oh, I was I 22 years old. I met her oh. in Australia. So I went there. I, I went there uh, as a single guy in, when I was 22 for two years, and that was 41 years ago. Wow! All right. So. And you still sound like. I still an sound Oregonian. American. I yeah. still sound American, but I am an Australian citizen, and yep. Australia's home. If I don't, oh. if I don't die here in Thailand, I'll die back in Australia. All right. <laughs> Let's. We're talking about that. Yeah. Why not? <laughs> So how did you end up here in Thailand? How did I end up in Chiang Rai, Thailand? Yeah. Um, my wife and I have been supporters of Destiny Rescue for a few years now. And uh, about a year and a half ago, we were here on vacation. And we decided we were in Chiang Rai, so we contacted DR and said, can we come in and have a look around, yeah. see what you do? 
we met a couple of the people who are still here today. Yeah. And um, uh, one of them, Jim, just said to me as we were leaving, he said, come on over, I've got a job for you. And uh, that planted a seed yeah. in my mind that said, uh, that's something I would love to do. Yeah. And so, uh, long story short, mm-hmm. uh, about a year and a half after that, we ended up Wow. And you take care of pastoral, pastoral care. I'm the pastoral care guy. My yep. official title is International Pastoral Care Manager, but that sounds a bit too Long. too, too <laughs> highfalutin for me, so I'm, I'm just the pastoral care guy. Which so is my main area is working with the volunteers mm-hmm. just to make sure things, homesickness issues that people have, decisions yeah. that they need to make. Um, trying to work on a little bit of spiritual formation as well with them. I do uh, some stuff a little bit with the Thai staff here. That becomes a little more difficult because they don't all speak English and I don't speak Thai. Right. But um, I've had, uh, we have a prayer meeting in the cafe. That's right. Five, five days a week and sometimes some of the Thai staff come and join us, some of the ones who speak English. So um, it's, it's a developing role, mm-hmm. but uh, the... The challenge is also connecting to the other Destiny Rescue people in in the other Project Nations. Yeah. Um, And most of that, well, all of that is either by email or by video chat. Right. I think it's amazing what you're doing. Oh, it's... Look, so far it's been... been, It hasn't been all that challenging. I've I've talked to a few people on some really, really deep issues, Mm -hmm. important issues. Yeah. But but I'm loving it here. Right. Right. Uh, I think it's wonderful. Well, thank you for sharing your story. My pleasure. <laughs> All right, so we're here with Nikki at the Destiny Rescue Cafe in Chiang Rai. Nikki, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, yeah, my name is Nikki Parlane. I am married and I have two children, April and Rosie, who are six and seven. And my husband Matt and I moved here to Chiang Rai in Thailand about three years ago from New Zealand. Woo-hoo. Go New Zealand. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. No, New Zealand's excited. amazing. I agree. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> so how did you end up here? Well, um, we, we hadn't really ever had mission on our hearts before. Um, we always believed, my husband had always believed that his job for the kingdom was to earn money and give it away. Um, so he believed that quite strongly and he is a computer programmer and I'm in media and we never saw our roles being used on the field anyway. So we were quite happy with um, sending other people and giving money. Um, and then within this strange period of time, uh, Matt, my husband, found himself with like his heart keep being broken for this issue of uh, children being abused and human trafficking. Now I'm the most emotional person in the entire world, <laughs> and my husband has like zero emotions. Like we joke all the time that he just doesn't feel. So in this strange six-month period, he would just break down in tears, and we were like, "Oh, Holy Spirit, what are you doing?" And we'll just keep listening. So one day we were at church and this guy spoke at church and he'd just come back from a year serving with Destiny Rescue in Chiang Rai. 
And I was like, oh, we should do something. And Matt's like, yeah, go buy a necklace. That you should go buy a necklace. So I was like, okay. And I bought a necklace and I was like, I don't know, it just doesn't feel like enough. And we're going for this walk and that day, because it was like our anniversary, I think. Oh, wow. So my parents were watching the kids and we were going for a walk. And I was like, what if we did something crazy, like moved overseas? And Matt was like, yeah, I guess I could get my work to transfer us to um, San Antonio, Texas. And I was like, yeah, 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 yeah. Or like Thailand. And then it was kind of silent. And then Matt was like, I believe in like um, loyalty and honor and I want to serve at my job till the end. He'd been there 15 years already. He left school when he was 15 helped start the business and wanted to see it through and he was like in this day and age loyalty to jobs and to yeah. work in the workplace is not valued it's not a trait you see very often anymore right. because it's all about what you can get and uh, how quickly you can advance and that kind of thing so I was like um okay well that's cool except that kind of makes me feel trapped I don't want to stay here and he was like, well, so we kind of like high-fived. We're on different pages, but at least we know where we're at. That is the funnest part of marriage. Right? Is it? Yeah, right? It's yeah, like, cool, it's like cool. just like, accepting. Yeah, okay. okay. We know yet. where we're at, yeah. at least. And uh, how do we figure this out? So <clears throat> that night, uh, like, we went home, and I was just Googling by myself, and I just went to DR's website, Destiny Rescue's website, and I saw on their vacant positions like there were four jobs and then two just right next to each other was like computer programmer, IT, and then videographer, photographer. And I was like, my heart just started pounding real crazy. And I was like, God, are you serious? Is that you? And then I was like, no, 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 no. I changed my mind anyway. And also Matt doesn't want to. And this is ridiculous. But I was Googling for like half an hour how to live in Chiang Rai. But I was like, doesn't matter because Matt doesn't want to do it. So I took a screenshot of the jobs though because I was like, God's doing something because my heart's going crazy. And I emailed it to Matt who was already in bed because it was after nine o'clock and was like me. <laughs> crazy. I just emailed him this picture and was like crazy. And then um, I didn't see him the next morning because so he went straight to work. And then when he got home, he was like, okay, I set up a meeting with that guy that spoke at church. And I was like, why? And he was like, well, God. Wow. And I was like, what do you mean? And he's just like that screenshot that was crazy and yeah. I just I feel like we need to meet with them and I was like all right Babel this is all on you because I'm not forcing you to do anything right. it was my idea so I don't want to be the one that's like dragging you mm -hmm. and also I've changed my mind because I don't want to live in Asia I don't know what I was thinking it was crazy I don't want to do it you know so then yeah from there it was like literally let's just walk through the doors until they close and they just yeah. keep flinging wide open Amazing. So many confirmations, so many. That's amazing. Uh, yeah, in the sense that they offered us the jobs, we obviously yeah. reapplied, and yeah. And, and you've been here for three years. Oh, I forgot it was that girl's birthday. I did too. Oh, happy birthday! Happy birthday! Happy birthday. She's, she's not out there. Isn't it you? Yeah, it is Sydney. Happy Sydney. birthday, Sydney! Happy birthday, Sydney! You're gonna be on the podcast. Oh, I have to go. Okay, she's gonna <laughs> have to go. I'm sorry. Goodbye.
gonna be my portion <laughs> of the the first episode back where I just kind of share what I experienced and what happened and what I'm still experiencing. I would I have to say this and I'll probably say it again in the episode that this isn't all tied together, neat, finished, clean with a bow on top. Um, I'm messed up from this trip in the best possible way. I want to go back to the nation so bad. I'm having a really hard time focusing at work. <laughs> um, I'm having a, you know, it's, it messed me up in a really good way. And I hope that this little episode with other people's testimonies and my own can help stir and encourage and challenge and provoke myself and anyone who's listening to stretch beyond ourselves, to take a big fat freaking risk and see God show up in these beautiful and extravagant ways. As my pastor taught a couple weeks ago, we serve a God of abundance. He's not a God of barely enough. He's not a God of the last minute only. He's a God of abundance. And a lot of times we only get to see his abundance. I'm not saying every time, I'm saying a lot of times. We only get to see his abundance when we get out of our normal, when we get out of our safe, our comfort, and our routine and start really despising the routine and the safe. I kind of feel that lately. So that was my little intro. I should probably like actually start telling you guys what happened. Um, so for those of you, again, who listened to the first season or uh, read any of my blogs or anything like that... Um, and I'll have a link to the blog on my Instagram page and also in a episode uh, info, you know, on the different uh, podcasting sites. Sorry, that was like really choppy, but I do want to do a link to it because I think that to digest a message, at least for me and for a lot of people, it's really nice to hear it and read something about it. It kind of sinks in a little bit deeper. So anyway, for those of you familiar and for those of you unfamiliar, some will remember, some this is new. I went to India in 2012. It was a really hard experience for me. Um, my cat just jumped up on the table. It was a really hard experience. It was um, my dream to go to India, to see the people of India and to see their land, to breathe the same air with them, to see their faces, to speak with them. I just, I just wanted to put my life in their presence, if that makes sense. And so I went and I ended up getting sick and I flew home alone from India. Uh, I went on a team and I flew home alone from India and it was, you know, like 26 hours of travel while sick. And that really started a lot of events in my life that were just um, tragic in their way. Um, the loss I experienced was like loss of identity and loss of dreams. You know, I had wanted to be a world traveler and do missions. I really love India. I really love the Southeast. I really love the Middle East. And this experience with India, for me, for a long time, for a number of years, it was an experience of failure and loss and tragedy and uh, shame, like horrible, crippling, crippling shame. Um, it got so bad, you know, that I was, I was depressed. I was suicidal. I, you know, like how it says in scriptures, you know, Paul despaired of life. And I definitely was like, got him out. You got to do something because I'm, I'm about ready to, 
could call it. And he did. He started kind of reeling me back in, kind of like a rope, pulling me back in, rearranging my inside, rearranging the story, rearranging me. He um, started drawing me out. It's when you're ashamed, you're hiding. You're like, oh man, it's like you've got everything piled on top of you. You, you don't want to see yourself. You don't want anyone else to see you. You're so, you're so ashamed of what you've lost, what you've become, what you let happen, or what you did. Um, I was ashamed of all those things. I was ashamed of what I lost. I was ashamed of what I let happen. I was ashamed of who I'd become. I was, I was ashamed of the way that I changed. I hadn't become, into my mind, I hadn't become better. I hadn't become more able. I had become not allowed, like disallowed from opportunity, disallowed from missions and ministry and from dreams. And so the Lord was reeling me back in and healing my shame and, and, and rewriting this story I had allowed the enemy to write. I think that shame is, is really just the enemy. He's trying to write the story for us. And he doesn't want us to have victory. He doesn't want us to have anything good ever. You know that song, Ain't No Grave? Well, shame is a robber, I think is what it says. Or maybe that's fear is a liar. But shame, it's something like shame is a robber. And shame names us something that doesn't belong to us. And so I had come to believe that I was disallowed. That I was I was dangerous for missions. I was dangerous for even travel, just basic travel. And the Lord brought a lot of healing, a lot of redemption, and a lot of renewal. If you want to hear more about the story, uh, episode one of season one of the podcast is all about that story and what happened and what God did. And there's a couple blogs as well. My blog is called Quiet Brilliance. It's on blogs, uh, WordPress. And uh, so... In the course of God healing me, healing my heart, pulling me back into missions, thank God he did that. I mean, that must mean that he wants me there. It's not just me, you know, like in a relationship. Is it just me? No, this isn't just me. This is where God wants me. And he's, because he's doing the work. And I started to consider missions again. And the Lord really started putting it on my heart again. And so I found this organization, Destiny Rescue. And I got hooked up with a team. June of 2018, I filled out an interest form on their site to go on a trip. That's how you do it. You fill out an interest form. If you guys are curious about it, you go to destinyrescue.org and you fill out an interest form. And then, you know, you, you get an opportunity at some point to apply for a trip. Well, I didn't know that the one of the organizers who works for Destiny Rescue and lived in Oregon, I live in Oregon, um, he was arranging a trip for the following summer, this, this summer, 2019. And he was bringing mostly people from Oregon, Washington, and California. So I don't, I'm not one of those people who has a lot of like God coincidences, you know, I, um, I think I said this in the first episode too. I, I just, I'm not one of those people God does that a lot with. I get to hear other people's stories and I'm always really excited for them and a little bit jealous, but last summer was like my big freaking God coincidence all over the place. And so I, I joined that team and we did, you know, a, a, over a year of prep and fundraising and getting to know each other and just getting ready for the trip. And July 26th this year, we took off. 
I hadn't, I had met some of the people in person, but not all of them. So I'd met um, some of them before, but I hadn't met most of the team yet. So we, most of us meet in Oregon at the airport, July 26th. And we had two people from California joining us, but we wouldn't meet them till the airport in Taiwan. I believe, yes, okay. <laughs> there were a lot of airports on this trip. There were a lot, there were, I think there were nine flights total in a two week trip, bananas. So, uh, so we go and we, you know, we fly all night and we, we get to Phnom Penh, Cambodia. It's the capital of Cambodia, um, a day later, essentially, you know, we've got like 18 hours, 18 hours of flying or so. I was expecting Cambodia to be like India because that's my only frame of reference for Southeast Asia. I was, <laughs> I was such a dip because we're riding in the tuk-tuks and they're a little bit different than the, um, I can't remember what the vehicles are called in, in India, which is horrible, but they're, they're covered and they're on three wheels and they're motorized. Well, these were like motorbikes carrying like a carriage kind of, but not, not quite a carriage. And so we all got in our tuk-tuks and we're driving to the, um, to the hotel in Phnom Penh that we were staying at. And I was just really struck by how not as, it wasn't as crowded as Mumbai. And so that was my first impression of Cambodia. Like, oh, it's not as crowded as Mumbai. Okay. <laughs> I can handle this. Because Mumbai was insane. Like, like a beautiful insanity, but insane nonetheless. And so we spent three days in Phnom Penh, I believe. Uh, three nights, three or four days. And we, um, Phnom Penh is, we went to three cities in Cambodia and Phnom Penh is, is their capital. It's their most industrialized, I would say. And other people probably know more about it than I do, but it's very beautiful, but it's, um, very crowded and dirty. So there's lots of waste everywhere and there's lots of delightful, yummy smells, the people are really beautiful and amazing, which is which is true of everywhere. Everywhere you go, really pay attention to the people. So our first full day, now actually I should reel it back a little bit. Part of the challenge I faced in India was was insomnia. I never slept more than three hours a night the whole time I was there. I was there for about a week, a week before I had to leave. And um, so the first night in Cambodia, I didn't sleep. I didn't sleep on the flights there either. So I was like really starting to get some fear that I was going to end up reliving the India experience, which was scaring the crap out of me, to be honest. So that first night in the hotel, I was really afraid and I was having trouble sleeping. And I reached out to friends on Facebook. Social media is really awesome when you're traveling because you can quickly access people and ask for prayer. And I was 14 hours ahead, so they were all still awake and like supposed to be awake. And I felt... That night, that night was kind of wild. I felt this pressure on my chest. I knew that it was oppression. I knew that it was demonic oppression. I knew that the enemy was like, I'm going to steal from you like I stole in India. And so I, I sought prayer on Facebook and I asked my roommate to pray. I roomed with an amazing girl named Melissa. I love her to pieces and she prayed for me and the, and the weight, the pressure just lifted. I didn't sleep that night, <laughs> but the strength that I ended up having 
the that night and the and every day. I mean, every day, like the strength that the Lord provided was just crazy. I've never felt like that before. I really haven't. I've I've really never had strength before, not like that. But our first full day, we went to the killing fields and S twenty one. So, Cambodia experienced genocide, not. 40 years ago, not quite 40 years ago. And uh, so the killing fields, there were killing fields all over the country, but this is one that's been preserved as, um, you know, a testimony, a memorial, a site, kind of like, kind of like a, a concentration camp. It's been preserved. And so <clears throat> we went there and it was, it was, I don't really have the right words. It wasn't depressing and sad. There were some really hard things. They, um, there's mass graves everywhere. There's, there's mass graves everywhere. Big, huge ditches. There's a lake at the back of the property that is just one big mass grave. And um, they had collections all over of bones that have washed up in the graves, clothing that's washed up in the graves, because um, they've ex they've I don't think that they really ex excavate anymore. But when it rains, the earth is unsettled, and some of the some of the bones and materials that are still down there wash up to the surface. And so um, every couple months they go and collect and they clean, they clean every bit of um, clothing that washes up to the top. They clean every bit of bone and they preserve and keep everything. So there's, there's two stories I want to tell from that experience just at the killing fields and then I'll go into the, the school S21. So, um, the first story is we were all given little audio sets and, uh, so by the time you're walking around the back where the lake is, the mass grave that's a lake now, um, you get the option to listen to this story and extra stories about it, about this man. I do not remember everything about it anymore, but this, this man, he was living in Phnom Penh at the beginning of the Khmer Rouge, and that is the genocide that I re referenced earlier. It started in Phnom Penh, and he was living there with his family, and his mom had had a dream about him, that he would do great things in his life. But as the Khmer Rouge was starting, he witnessed his cousins being killed. And he was, I think he ended up in one of the killing fields, in one of the concentration camps, essentially. Like, I'm drawing parallels between the Khmer Rouge and the Holocaust. It's not exactly what they called it. They didn't call it a concentration camp, but very similar. And... He, um, he got a little bit of money somehow and he made it out of the country to the United States and he went to school and he went and did all these things and now he lives his life to raise awareness of the Khmer Rouge and to fight for justice. And he was sustained throughout all of that tragedy, throughout all of that misery and injustice, through all of the death, everything that he witnessed. He was sustained by this one word of hope from his mom. So it's like if, if one of us had like 
a dream or a vision or a prophetic word. And that was the only one that we got. And it sustained us through so much tragedy. I just, I was blown away by that. And I wish I was telling that story better, but I would encourage you to look into it. And if you're ever in Cambodia, go, go to the killing fields. Um, I was blown away that one word of hope could sustain through so much tragedy, through an actual genocide, and wind up propelling this man, having, he held onto it, obviously like an anchor, like a lifeline, and it kept him on the road to doing exactly what the word said he would do. And the, the second story I want to tell is, I hope this doesn't sound self-serving in a way. Uh, there is a tree in the killing fields that they call the killing, the magic tree. There's a killing tree as well. That's really sad. Um, the magic tree. This is a tree that they hung really, uh, speakers from. And there was also a generator that ran nearby. From the speaker played, uh, revolution songs that Pol Pot liked at the same time as a generator was playing to kind of keep everything powered and the lights on. Um, on the recording that we had, it played what it would have sounded like. So we heard the revolution song and, and the generator at the same time. And they would turn this on, these things on at night to cover the sounds of mass murder so that the people living around the killing fields wouldn't know what was happening. So I was moved by this when I heard it. But then I was, we were out in our tuk-tuks again later. I think we were in between, um, I think we were in between the killing fields and S21. S21 is a school that was converted into a prison slash concentration camp slash torture and interrogation. And now it's a museum. So I think we were traveling from the killing fields to S21. And a car started near us that sounded just like that generator. And suddenly I was back at the killing fields. It was night, there were lights on and I was terrified for my life. In the streets of Phnom Penh, I was suddenly believed and felt and saw all around me the killing fields. And I heard the music and it was night. I was terrified. So I, um, that was basically secondary trauma from a sound that triggered it. From hearing, you know, a motor that sounded just like that generator. And I, obviously, I don't know what it's like to survive genocide. I don't know what it's like to survive mass murder. I don't know what it's like to have that going on, you know, around me. And, but for a moment, I was somehow there. And I know it sounds silly and weird and bizarre, but it was real to me and I was terrified. I was, it's like I had actually experienced it and I kind of shut down for a few minutes because I was so scared and struck and horrified and afraid for my life. So it was in all likelihood probably just a moment a shadow of what they might have experienced and lived through and endured. And then we went to S21. That's a really hard place. Like the killing fields is hard 
the Kelly Field is hard, but it's kind of like a museum or a memorial and like a tour a little bit. There's not, to me, it wasn't super gruesome. It was, um, it was very stirring and provoking and I'm really honored that I got to see it, that I got to be there and I got to walk that hallowed land. But S21 was gruesome. Um, I used to think that I could totally handle going to Auschwitz and Dachau, but um, I'm not sure I could anymore because I was pretty close to tapping out at S21. So there were a series of classrooms and they were all converted into either like um, interrogation rooms or prisons, like prison rooms. So the first building that we went into Every room had a bed frame in it and they have um, chains. It's really not really, it's not really a chain, it's a bar. And one end is padlocked to the bed frame and the other end has one little loop that they would lock a person's ankle in to keep them stuck to the bed. And in each room, there was pictures of what had happened in the rooms, you know, pictures of of tools or or even the actual tools there and these bed frames are the actual bed frames that people laid on while they were being tortured they're the actual irons feet irons so it's just really harrowing the floors still have blood on them we went up and down stairs you know to each different level and the blood in the stairwells cement stairwells was horrifying large spots of blood that have never been cleaned up, nor should they. And uh, that was really hard. And so we saw all of that. <clears throat> and a lot of us just kind of broke up into different groups and went through it however we needed to. There were rules posted, obviously in Khmer, which is their language. And then they had them translated into a couple different languages. One is one was English, of course, because um, all the countries are very accommodating to Americans. The rules were horrendous. It was, the language was like, it was like, how dare you make a noise when you're being questioned and tortured? And you, you the, basically it was like how they weren't allowed to make noise or do anything to make it difficult to torture them. So it was... That was really shocking to read those things. And then we went to another building, again, formerly classrooms in this building. And <clears throat> there were, they cataloged everything meticulously. The Khmer Rouge, they cataloged everything meticulously. They took pictures of every single person who went into that prison. So walk through rooms and rooms and halls and halls of pictures of every single victim, babies, moms with their babies, little children. And it's just mind-blowing. And then one of the rooms, probably more than one, but one of the rooms had basically jail cells. So they built up these brick walls and they were just big enough for like maybe a mattress and in each room, there was a leg iron with a chain. And that's where each person was kept. And it reminded me of this documentary I watched called The Pink Room. 
it's on Netflix. It's free. At least it was the last time I watched it. I lied. It's on um, Amazon Prime. And uh, it's not on Netflix. Amazon Prime. Go there. The Pink Room. And uh, it reminded me of this documentary where in this brothel where little girls were being raped, visited, trafficked, in this big room they have built up these plaster walls just big enough for a bed and like a little nightstand and some room to walk really really tiny I mean just think really really tiny like not even like a twin size bed like a I don't know what it was it was barely a bed and that's where these little girls were kept and man after man would come in and rape them and so these rooms that I saw you know in these former classrooms these little cells reminded me of that and I just I started to get really overwhelmed <laughs> Like, yeah, I don't know if I can do this anymore. Um, went through a couple more rooms, a couple more classrooms, and saw more and more pictures. And then started seeing more and more pictures of the horrendous things done to people. And the state that they were left in. And um, one thing, you know, uh, people who are taking care of these uh, memorials is um, they're being very meticulous with the bones that are found. I mean, cleaning them, taking care of them, cataloging, just great, great care. And so there was one room with many, many skulls of those who had died there. And um, it was the same thing at the killing fields. And so on the one hand, you know, profound respect and admiration and, and just awestruck at the care and the, the love really the love for their former countrymen you know and uh, it's just amazing but on the other side um so much loss of life so much loss of life so much horror so that was i i, I really couldn't go through much more i went and sat um with my friend she and i went through it together and uh she was really patient with me she's really sweet because i was you know, you know how when you go somewhere, you really want to be in it. And I was in it as much as I could be, and then I was like, "Yeah, I think I've had. I think my heart's had enough." Which shocking that we can make that choice and they couldn't. Every time I I've, I've had enough with something hard, and I get to opt out of it, I'm just forever humbled that I get to be done with something that's hard, and someone else didn't. And um. So there were only 12 survivors of S21. And every single day, one or more of them is there at S21 talking to visitors or selling their books and talking to visitors. This blows my freaking mind. You could not pay most Americans to show up at a place like that that did that level of destruction to them and their family and their loved ones every single day to make sure the story is told. I firmly with all my heart believe that the Cambodians have something we don't have and that we need. That the Cambodians have something the world needs. They experienced genocide and then they experienced other takeovers and other awful political things and upheaval in their nation and they're, they're really still a third world nation. So there's a lot that they that they need our help with, but there's a lot that we need their help with. How to forgive. 
how to be fully restored and fully redeemed. And they're still needing to experience that for sure in, in some areas. But they have something that we need. And I am just awestruck at their strength, at their resilience, at their ability to come back from that and to keep going. And to, I just, I mean, come on, you know. We leave jobs over much less than what they experience and never go back there again, never talk to the people. And these people, these survivors come back to the place that almost killed them every single day. But we won't, we'll unfriend someone on Facebook or unfollow someone on Instagram. Come on! They have something that we need. So, those are my experiences with that. Uh, with the killing field in S21. Um, we we got to do a lot of really fun things, but to kind of get the full Cambodian, you know, uh, immersion, you've got to do the killing fields in S21. It gives you a way, um, a way more full appreciation for the rescue work and the redemption work that's being done for girls pulled out of human trafficking. So we went to three homes in Cambodia, one in each city. Went to three cities, Phnom Penh, Kampong Cham, and Siem Reap. So the home in the home in, in Phnom Penh was our first home that we visited. And <laughs> let's just, you know, have an understanding here. All humans are dorks. <laughs> we are all dorks, okay? So these girls, they're wary of us. We're like oh gosh, we hope we don't upset them or do anything to make them uncomfortable. Oh my gosh. So um, we broke up into groups because they're all learning English. All the girls in rescue homes are learning English because it's it helps them get jobs. It helps them be far less vulnerable because if they can speak English, then they might be able to understand a trafficker and, you know, and know that the trafficker is lying or know that someone else is lying. You know, it's it's just, it's a, a thing that helps them to be less vulnerable, more capable, more em employable. So this first home, we got to be taught by, or uh, I guess, yeah, taught by a couple of people who help run the homes. They're volunteers from America. Most of the homes are run by volunteer staff. And then they have in-country, I think paid staff that do a lot of the social work and stuff like that. So we were taught some of the things that the girls are learning. Um, they're being taught good touch, bad touch, you know, that you don't have to do what your boyfriend wants to do just because you saw it in a porn movie, which I was shocked by. I mean, all girls want boyfriends, right? I wanted a boyfriend. <laughs> These girls all want boyfriends. I don't know how they want to go near a man again, but they do. And that must be just a remarkable testimony of the healing of God. That's amazing. And so, um, and then we, they broke into their classes to learn English. And I was with a couple other girls and one of the other volunteer in country staff from New Zealand. And we were going to do <clears throat> songs with the girls. So we did Hokey Pokey and we did another song. So, you do the hokey pokey, right? I mean, is there a more shameless thing you can do than the hokey pokey? And that got us all loose and we're just hanging out and laughing. And then we did another um, 
thing where everybody came back together, got in a circle, and everyone had to say their name and their favorite color and where they're from. And we were told not to ask the girls where they're from. I think this happened. If I'm lying, I apologize. So we all ran around in a circle and we all said, you know, our name and our favorite color. And the girls said it all in English. And they were they would say their name, which I couldn't understand. And they would say, I like yellow. <laughs> so they were they're just amazing. Anyway, the girls are so young. It'll blow your mind. Um, and in this particular home, they're all learning salon skills. So how to do hair, how to do makeup, how to do nails. So a lot of the girls got their hair done. A lot of the girls got their nails done. I got my nails done. The, the girl who did my nails didn't really talk to me or really even look at me very much. But we smiled a couple times and tried to talk. And, you know, big language barrier. But I talked to this one girl. We all talked to this one girl because she was really trying to learn English. She was 14. So she's made it to the home. She's recovered enough to be hanging out. She's 14. So let that sink in. She wasn't 14 when she was trafficked. She was probably younger. And um, she wasn't all dressed up. And all the other girls were all dressed up. She was a very serious little girl. Very serious. And um, she really wanted to learn English. And so she was having like serious conversations with us. And like, I felt like I could relate to her because she befurred her brow so much. And I, I don't think she was upset or frustrated. I think she was just concentrating. And I do that a lot. A lot. And people are like, are you upset? Frustrated? I'm like, no, I'm concentrating. This is my concentration phase. You're just going to have to get over it. <laughs> but I just, she, she just was so striking. And then when we were leaving, she still had a frustrated look on her face. She still wanted to know English. She still wanted to be able to converse with us. And I was just... I just, I still can't get over that. Like, who would have thought that she was a prime suspect to be raped and to be trafficked? Like, how does that make any sense? It's awful. And, you know, just, we really need to be doing what we can to be part of rescue efforts. You know, like, I can't, I don't think I could be a rescue agent. You know, I'm not the clientele that they're looking for in bars and brothels. <laughs> But going and, and giving and being a part of this and even selling all you have and moving because these girls are worth it. Because these girls shouldn't be anywhere near a person who wants to exploit them. Ever. So, that was the first home. It was awesome. <laughs> we can't take pictures of the girls. We can't really take pictures of the home. So a lot of it just kind of has to stay in our memories. Um, every day was so crazy, crazy, insane, insane, busy. Um, I got to the point where I was just writing lists of what we did. And I don't think I got to process anything until getting home, until like a couple weeks after getting home, to be honest. Still processing, still remembering things. But um, so the next city was Kampong Cham. Kampong Cham rocks so much. Okay, I love that city. It's kind of like a smaller town here. Ugh. Dude. So we got to visit a home there. And that was awesome. The girls, um, we got to write letters to the girls. Uh, like for ones that'll be coming in at some point rescued. You know, they'll get a letter from someone from America or New Zealand or something like that. You know, someone who really believes that they're special and important. 
And this is the home that we uh, we made jewelry in. So we went upstairs and we, I was in one of the rooms sitting in a circle with a bunch of girls and a couple other teammates. And they start teaching you how to make beaded jewelry, like rings and bracelets and stuff. So I sit next, I sit in between these girls and they just start helping me and we talk as best we can. You know, there was a, a guy in our group, Justin, who was really keeping them talking, really keeping them laughing. It was awesome. So I'm very slowly making this ring. Like, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just trying to spend time with them. And they're helping me and they finish. And then I go on to make another thing and they just like start putting jewelry on us. Like all these girls, and they did it with everyone in the group. They just keep making jewelry so fast and they were putting them on our hands and fingers. And they are goofy, silly, pretty, cute, sweet, funny girls. They, I mean, like you can't, you, it doesn't hit you at all that these girls have been trafficked. It's like, it doesn't make any sense that these girls have been trafficked. It doesn't, it doesn't compute. Because you're just hanging out with goofy, silly teenagers. 16, 17 years old. Some of them probably younger. Maybe some of them a little bit older. And you're just having fun. You're just playing with jewelry. You know? And then um, we go downstairs. Because it was, our bus wasn't there to pick us up. Because we only had one night in Camp Long Champ. And um, we go downstairs and we end up playing musical chairs. Now, maybe I'm just, I'm just too coddled being an American and a Westerner. I'm just way too coddled, but, or maybe I'm too old. I don't know. <laughs> I'm like 20 years older than those girls. But they were running and playing and smashing into each other with abandon. No fear no fear at all. And I am telling you, I was a, like, I had my personal space barrier up and nothing bad has ever happened to me. Not on that scale. Not even near. I mean, I've had whatever, but shh, no. So they were just playing and laughing and squealing and singing and having fun with abandon, you guys, with abandon. It was amazing. It was so inspiring. Also, another word about Kampong Cham. I think that's my favorite Cambodian city. The first night we were there, we went out to dinner and then we went and took a walk. And then as we're walking along the Mekong River, it's kind of like the waterfront. Like if you've been to Portland and you go to the Lam River waterfront in downtown Portland, um, it was kind of like that, only it was at night. And we stumbled upon, across this like huge, huge group of people doing synchronized choreographed dancing to just all these American pop songs. I'm like, I am in Kampong Chan, Cambodia, right along the Mekong River. There's choreographed dancing right in front of me. There's no way I'm missing this. So a bunch of us like jumped in the back and started dancing with a bunch of Cambodians. And it was amazing. And that place has my heart. We then went to Siem Reap. And Siem Reap is a little more touristy and kind of cleaner and nicer, a little easier to get around. Lots and lots more, um like bistros and stuff like that. There's lots of nonprofits there. And so we, let me see, we stayed there for a couple of nights, I think. And we went to a home. Okay, so Seam Reap was a really cool home. This is a really long story as well. Um, so this home, 
the people who are running it are from, oh gosh, I think Ohio. And they're recently there. It's a mother-daughter team. And they have in-country staff who do like social work and stuff like that, like what I've said before. And so they have visiting teams do a mural all around their home, um, all around like the, the gate around their home. And so I um, had been thinking the verse, garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. And I think that Jim had been thinking the same verse. So I shared that with the team and we ended up doing a mural with like angel wings, you know, kind of like, um, kind of like fun hipster angel wings. And then on top it said garments of praise. So it's one of those things that you can like go stand in and get your picture taken. <laughs> so we worked on that while the girls played with the rest of the team. And we met, um, one of the social workers, her name is Sam. She's amazing. She uh, was so sweet. Oh my goodness. And she would just come and like hold your hand and sit with you and connect with you like really deeply. And she's working on her English and she's amazing. And she used to work with, I guess she survived polio as a very young child. And so she's been helped by different um, nonprofits. And she worked with YWAM before coming to Destiny Rescue. And she shared, um, she was sharing how she needs someone to talk to. She needs a counselor um, to help her process and help her deal with all the stories from the girls that she hears. She was really vulnerable, really amazing, really honest. Um, so there's a need. If you want to pray for Cambodia, if you want to pray for this ministry, if you want to pray for this work, of stopping human trafficking, pray, please pray for the social workers and the counselors who work with the girls and have to hear these horrors. She also needs financial support, so does Destiny Rescue, so do a lot of other organizations that are out there, because it costs money to rescue. It costs a lot of money to rescue. Especially in some of these countries like Cambodia, they don't even use Cambodian real that much. They use American dollars, so it's very expensive. So that was touching and gut-wrenching. We also went to a water park with the girls. That was amazing. <laughs> we got to do a fun outing with them and go to a water park. They'd never been there. And gosh, I don't know how long it's been since I've been to a water park. So that was pretty fun just to be fun and safe with people. Um, these girls were a little, were not as like silly and goofy as the ones in um, Camp Punk Cham or, or Pen on Pen, but they were really going through a lot of healing. And then we went to Angkor Wat, which is amazing. We got up really early for a sunrise. I think we got up at like 4 a.m. for a sunrise and the sun didn't rise. <laughs> but it was still really beautiful. I've, I've dreamed for years of going to Angkor Wat. And so that was, that was a dream come true. Uh, the next leg of the trip was Thailand. <sighs> this one's hard in a way. I've always had a heart for Cambodia. And I was really asking the Lord, hey, please give me a heart for Thailand as well. Because uh, I've just never, it's not one of those places that's ever really gripped me or captivated me. You know, but the night before in Siemery, when we were flying to Bangkok, um, I started getting sick. And so uh, I was sick for six days, five or six days. I still had amazing strength and energy and ability through it. Like I was making frequent trips to the bathroom and I wasn't able to do some things, but I was still able to do pretty much everything. And, um, and I was sick and I, you know, felt pretty crummy, but 
you gotta do what you gotta do and there was so much strength and joy in the midst of it and God really just opened up my heart for Thailand dang it it was awesome I now love Thailand I don't love Bangkok <laughs> Bangkok was like Portland with palm trees so we were only there for two nights really just one day so we got there at night and went to our hotel and then we got up in the morning and we went to church and I had to come home early from church because I was really sick. And then that night, Sunday night, we went to two red light districts. That was our whole reason for going to Bangkok was to see the red light, red light districts. Ugh. Anyway, the first one was an open air, just street, it was just down the street. Lots of like... I don't know I feel like it was like a lot of like blue and purple lights or something and it was open air but I have never felt like I was in a place that had more of a ceiling than that place I felt so pressed on every side and especially from the top I felt like I was being crushed and there was no there's no ceiling there's nothing there to crush and I felt like I was being crushed so it's just bars nothing but bars Nothing but girls, barely dressed, numbers, waiting. It was a slow night because it's Sunday night and we went out eight. You know, it's like not that busy. Or maybe it was nine, but you know. Things like that don't get busy till the wee hours, right? So there's a lot of girls sitting around and we were supposed to be looking for underage girls. And we were also supposed to be paying attention to the faces of the girls when they didn't know they were being watched. They don't want to be there. A lot of people are in those situations because they need money. Not all of them are trafficked. Some of them just need money. There's got to be a better way, right? We've got to do better than that. And uh, I saw one girl. I tried to catch her. I tried to catch her gaze um, because I wanted to smile at her. I wanted to give her a smile where I didn't want anything from her. Just showing her kindness. Just showing her human kindness. And seeing that she is a human, worthy of a smile, of a loving, kind gaze. But she didn't look up. She didn't know anyone was watching her. She was just sitting at a bar-like table, trying to eat. And I've never seen despair like that. I've never seen despondent like that. She'll stay with me. That was a sad place. Um, <clears throat> the men walk around thinking these women are happy to see them. And it's really sad because they're not happy to see them and these men need someone to be happy to see them. That's the brokenness of the thing. They're not all out evil men. They're in sin and in bondage and they're hurt too. They need someone to be happy to see them. They need someone to desire them. We then went to the biggest red light district in Bangkok. Uh, we were searched when we came in, probably because we have bags and they were looking for weapons. Um, it's like a sex emporium. It's awful. It's three levels and um, it's kind of a rounded out open air place. And um, every 10 to 15 feet, there's another bar or brothel. It was sick. Um, you've got girls in bikinis, barely their bikinis, with numbers on their G-string. And, uh, you know, when they're on duty, 
they're smiling and trying to get you to come into their bar because their mama sons are watching like hawks and they're off duty they look sullen they're just trying to cram some food in their mouth we, again we were looking for what they really look like and we were also looking for underage girls so we could take note and then rescue agents go back to those places and try to get the girls you know to trust them and come out um some people were grabbed by the girls you know like trying to get them to come in um that only happened to me once i was grabbed by two girls they were gorgeous <laughs> tall barely dressed trying to get me to come in to their bar um as with all things where you don't speak the language you just smile and say i'm sorry i'm sorry i'm sorry <laughs> and that's what i did um this was another place where the men just broke my heart uh first off i've been you know every woman's been looked at like they're a piece of meat all of us have um it's ridiculous and it's stupid and it's rooted in some pretty crazy crap but I like to say the other word. <laughs> I might later. But these men, I've never been looked at like that. Every girl was game. Every girl was a commodity. Every single girl. I've never been looked at like that. These men are so, I mean, they're so in bondage and they're so desperate. They really were believing the lie that the girls desired them. And it's, it's rooted in, in a really deep need, a really deep wound for them. And I really didn't have anything against them. I thought it was disgusting, of course. I thought it was depraved and awful. And it, and, it, and it is. It's depraved and awful. It's sin. Pure and simple. But also the captivity that they're in. It's like they're in the jail cell next to the girls. Right? Because the girls are in, cap, in captivity and so are they. They're, they're captive to sin. And so I... My heart was changed that night. Like, I'd always known. I hadn't always known. But um, as I've worked with anti-trafficking things, you know, I'm learning that, you know, the men need recovery and, and all that kind of stuff, not just prison. And um, that night changed me. Because they, I just saw them in a prison cell. I saw them and what's really going on. And uh, another thing that we witnessed that was really hard for me, um, I don't know if anyone else witnessed it on the trip, I didn't even share this, um, but there were a lot of lady boys, so men dressed up as women, prostituting themselves. And there was one that was walking with our group for a time, going into Nona Plaza. And I thought it was a man, he was walking a little bit ahead of us, just from the legs, you can kind of tell. Um, wearing a light white lacy dress and heels and um, I thought it was a man and then we got in a position where I saw his face and I was like man and again the despair it's just heartbreaking he didn't want to be there he didn't want to he didn't want to be raped he didn't want to be prostituting himself he didn't want to be there and it was heartbreaking so there's also that component there you know there's there's girls that need the money there's people who are trafficked in and underage and there's boys who need money and that really does happen a lot in in thailand so these these issues really are um they're so complicated and then at the end of the day they're so simple and need jesus 
so the rest of our, our work in Thailand was we we volunteered at a cafe and we did some cleaning. Um, we met a lot of volunteer Destiny Rescue staff. So they come, they sell everything, they leave everything in their homes. Uh, Australia, New Zealand, and America are, are the supporting nations of Destiny Rescue. And so we met a lot of these people who just left everything to come and help support this cause and come and train and teach the girls and pastor the native in-country staff. And we went to we went to a village <laughs> in Thailand and uh, we were helping continue the work of Destiny Rescue to build relationship with this village and to teach the children English. So I got to be in a classroom with what would be comparable uh, to first graders. <laughs> oh, these kids were so cute. I'm not really someone who's like super into kids. I know it's a terrible thing to say, but I love babies. And then when they get to be like kid age, I'm so bad with kids. Oh my gosh. I mean, I can do little kids, but. So anyway, this was pretty fun. They were, they, some of them were so shy. <laughs> but some were just amazing. And we just had them repeat words like, like pencil or desk or box, you know, really simple words, cat, woman, window, stuff like that. And then, you know, we made sure we had examples of those in the classroom so that they could see, you know, what it was. And they did excellent. And we started, we did so many high fives and fist, fist bombs. <laughs> it's like universal language and so much fun. It's so easy to like break the ice when you like run your fist into a small child's fist and then you pull your arm back and go <laughs> it really helps <laughs> it really helps uh just kind of get us all on the same level right that we're all dorks um so that was amazing that was um I'll never forget that and um they're precious man people are precious and they're really just beautiful so my my last story about Thailand is um on our last day, we went to a tourist attraction in an actual temple called the White Temple. It's in Chiang Rai, Thailand. We spent four or five days in Chiang Rai. Um, that's where a lot of the staff live. Um, I hated that place. It's like an amusement park to Buddhism. It's like an amusement park to hating the West. It's like an amusement park to death. Um, Look at pictures, you know, if you want, on Google. Um, Buddha can't do anything for you, right? We serve the only God, it says in Isaiah, I think, 55 or 58. We know the only God who moves on behalf of those who seek him and those who hope in him. So Buddha can't do anything for you. So there are prayers hanging all over, hanging from all these... Um, walkways and trees and all that kind of stuff. All these people have paid money to hang this thing that's basically decor for the grounds. And it's a prayer to Buddha. It's going nowhere. <laughs> it's just stolen money going nowhere. Um, a lot of the artwork is um, hanging decapitated, fake, artistic. Some people actually thought I was speaking of actual capitated heads, but like Captain America and some of our other... Um, uh, cultural icons and symbols are hanging from trees. It's just their heads. Um, it's been really built up. There's even a water, water like park feature thing. So it's definitely an amusement park. 
And the guy who's building this thing <clears throat> has been working on it for a number of years. He has plans for it to continue, like, even past his death. This thing's going to be epic. And he hates the West. He hates Western religion. He hates our churches. But yet he's done what he's accused us of doing it. He's made an amusement park of his church, of his temple. You spend 50 baht to get in, which isn't very much. It's uh, 30 baht to a US dollar. So it's, it's not very much for us, but for them it's quite a bit. Yeah, so you, you walk over this archway or this big bridge and on either side is sculptures and artwork all in white of um, the first section is like bones and skulls and the next section is uh, hands reaching up from the grave and many of the middle fingers are painted red but everything else is white and then you've got like these big demonic gargoyle things that start greeting you as you come into the temple and you have to carry your shoes because you walk through and then you leave and when you go, there's big murals on the wall. I didn't look at the murals. I was too uh, struck by something else. Other people found them really fascinating. I was, it was kind of like another horror to me, what I saw. Um, so many Thai citizens go in and they pay money. They drop money in these bowls, right? And they kneel and they pray. There is a clay statue of the oldest monk. And some people were trying to figure out if it was real or if it was fake. I think fake, personally, but other people in the group thought it was real. And then behind him, there's this white statue of Buddha. Or one of, anyway. Um, so you kneel down and you pray and you give all this money so that your prayers can be answered. And I know, I, I know, that, I know that many religions steal from people. I know that Christianity has branches that steal from people. I know that we have a history of stealing from people. I've never been stolen from by the church. That I, I, that's not my testimony. And so I've never witnessed it. But I witnessed religion robbing a nation blind. And I was so angry. I'm still very angry. There's Buddhism, just karma and reincarnation and the life that you're born into is what you deserve because of a past life. It has led to death and destruction. It's why the idea of rescuing a small child from a human trafficking situation is not something that they inherently do and someone needs to come help them do that. Buddhism has robbed them blind. So the White Temple for me really stirred up a lot of anger. <laughs> Those are really angry, really frustrated. Um, that was hard. And that was our last full day, I think, in Thailand. And um, that has kind of set me, what I witnessed in Cambodia and Thailand with, with what religion is working in that in those nations has really kind of set me on a new course in a way. Um, I'm really far more passionate about the nations now. I'm really far more passionate about them knowing the name of Jesus. The name of Jesus is the only answer. The name of Jesus is the only thing. The name of Jesus is the only name. And I, 
the songs have new meaning, worship has new meaning, prayer has new meaning, religion has new meaning, because it is the name of Jesus. And now my prayer is that every ear will hear the name of Jesus, that he will become famous, that he will be lifted up, lifted high in the nations. We need this. I'm about to break into tongues, sorry. We need this. We need this. We need the name of Jesus. Jesus, 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 Jesus over Thailand, over Cambodia, over the U.S., over the Middle East, over Southeast Asia, over Latin America, over South America, over Africa, over Europe. Father, we need the name of Jesus to break out to rain down, to be the only name that we go to, the only name that we know, the name above every other name. We need Jesus. So, that's my story. Um, there's a lot more redemption that's being worked for me. And I think my story is important, but I also think the name of Jesus is way more important. Um, I know I've written about this recently, um, but I know that when I would hear other people's stories of kind of like getting through something or overcoming something or God redeeming something for them, those were those stories, me hearing them, me being a witness to those, those were God's invitation to me. To let him in to my messed up stuff. To let him in to my losses, my missed opportunities, my failures, my shame. It was my invitation from God. Every time I heard one of those stories, God was like, I can do this for you. I can do this for you. I can do this for you. Let me do this for you. Let me do this for you. And I just want to encourage you. I just, we share these things because we want someone else to, we want another story out there to be heard of how good our God is. And so let this be another invitation for you. Another invitation for you, the listener. Whoever you are, whatever your situation, I'm encouraging myself even with sharing this. I've written this out twice. This is the second time I've spoken this story. Um, This is the most detailed, but this is even an invitation to me again because Every day there's something for God to redeem. Every day there's something for God to wake up that was dead. Every day there's something for God to heal that broke. And so let this be your invitation to look at the lives of these girls that's being rescued and redeemed. Hear the rest of the stories on this episode of when we just let God have it all. Go back and listen to the first episode of season one of Brave Talk Podcast. Listen to everything I lost and then listen to this episode. God is doing something stupid, crazy, awesome, amazing, wonderful, good. No more words. It's just amazing. He's so good. He knows who we are. He knows what we need and he knows what he knows what he's doing. He knows what he's doing. He's good and he's faithful and he's redeeming everything. He's not leaving anything old. He's not leaving anything in a broken state. He's making every single thing new. He's not leaving anything alone. Please take hope. Please be encouraged. Please um, have hope that you can see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. 
that you can see the goodness of the Lord in the land that you are living. Thank you.